Hey you and welcome to Pillars, here to inspire you with personal stories from LGBTQ people who have overcome their own social, cultural or psychological challenges and use those very personal experiences to motivate their own self-empowerment. I'm Jordan Yediman and I believe that individual self-empowerment is key to strengthening our community. So I want to introduce you to some of our amazing community pillars to hear their stories, learn from their lessons and find out what advice they might have for people in similar circumstances. Let's strengthen the community by empowering individuals because we can't build a home out of broken bricks. We need pillars. I first met Greg early in 2018 when I attended a chemsex first aid workshop at 5016 Street, run by the wonderful David Stewart. I was there because I was involved in a connection campaign with Impulse London at the time, which David had set up. We didn't get a chance to discuss our work in great detail, but I was pleased when I saw Greg a week or so later at Let's Talk About Gay, Sex and Drugs, which again was hosted by David Stewart at Q-Bar in Soho. He seemed more shy and maybe even a little bit overwhelmed by the support that was in the room. However, his honesty was clearly appreciated and I really admired his passion. Again, we didn't get to chat much that evening because Greg was filming scenes from the BBC documentary The People vs the NHS, Who Gets the Drug? in which Greg candidly discusses how his HIV diagnosis sparked his activism, leading him to co-found IWantPrepNow.co.uk alongside Alex Craddock. Since then, Greg has fought to make PrEP, which is the drug that has been proven to stop people from contracting HIV, readily available on the NHS. The courageous act of embracing this life-changing moment and using it to drive conversations around the advancement of HIV prevention and treatment is not only the reason why he was one of the first people I thought of when planning this podcast, but also the reason he has gained admiration amongst HIV, PrEP and sexual health activists, but also amongst his online followers who I'm sure will share the thanks I have for the hard work and tireless dedication that Greg, as well as all the activists and campaigners involved in making PrEP available to those who need it. Greg invited me to the Terence Higgins Trust where he's lead for PrEP to discuss his journey from Belfast to London and to explore what it is that drives his activism. That was in January when we had no idea of what was unfolding with the global coronavirus pandemic. Since then, on the 15th of March, UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced his commitment that PrEP would be made available on the NHS. In the meantime, global priorities have changed, so Greg and I thought it would be a good idea to do a little socially distanced chat via a video call for an update on the PrEP rollout and what the pandemic means for PrEP users. Okay, so there's a disclaimer here, which I'm hoping if you've made it this far, you'll be too invested to care about. And when we recorded at Terence Higgins, we had commandeered a counselling room, which was quite echoey. And it turns out that other people needed to use. So there is some background noise. But if you can bear with that like we did, I'm sure you'll agree that the conversation is important and as informative as ever. So firstly, um, I want to say thank you for agreeing to meet me because... Um, you don't know this, and I didn't say this to you before either, that um, actually you were kind of like seminal and pivotal to like me starting this. Um, I met you at um, a chemsex. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> a chemsex first aid. Yes, 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 y
Yeah. Well, I got roped in by David Stewart, but that's another matter. Um, so I had no idea like about the work you were doing or anything at the time. I just kind of thought you were like a cool guy that we like that was like really easy to talk to and stuff like that. Um, and then I went along to another event at Cuba, um, which was let's talk about queer boys, sex, and drugs. Let's talk about gay sex and drugs. Gay sex and drugs. Yeah. And um, it's the first time I'd seen you kind of speak about any of the work that you were doing, and I had no idea like what that meant um, until. Um, People versus the NHS came out. Mm-hmm. It, it came at a really good time for me because I was having conversations with David as well quite a lot, and I just started working with Caden. I was kind of feeling like I wasn't doing anything to really like of any value or anything at all, and I was like dying and reaching out to people to do stuff. Um, so to hear your kind of story gave me a kick up the ass to kind of get involved and do something. So thank you very much. Well, I'm glad it did that. It's obviously always very strange to hear that but um, I'm glad it had that effect that documentary not only that documentary but obviously a lot of the work you've done as well is inspiring people continuously do you feel that? Um, it's a really hard question to answer because back in the early days in 2015 I got a sense really quickly that I was doing something of worth for sure like I could feel the traction and I could feel like the reverberations of what I was saying like really quickly and so I knew something was happening and I didn't really know what because I was kind of clueless but it's like I get quite a lot of like very flattering uh, accolades and um, I get credited with a lot of the successes that we've seen in HIV and actually those things are really difficult to kind of get a grasp on because it's not just my work and the work that I've done it's the work of 35 years before me and, and hundreds of people that work with me but it's weird for, on a personal level, I guess, you don't ever expect your name to be attached to that kind of story. So you can get a little bit fucked up if you start buying into that. So I learned after two or three severe meltdowns that I had to separate the public facing, me that does the work and what people think I am, and then the actual me, because they're two different people. Because if you walk around thinking that you're this amazing, God's gift to gay men and HIV prevention, you end up just completely losing the plot. So I know that the work that we've done has been really successful, but I can't sit in that work. So I have to kind of almost put a wall up and say that is something and someone else, um, which has allowed me to maintain like a shred of sanity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's been a struggle at times. Do you feel like you need to stay engaged in those conversations because of this kind of you've quoted yourself as like the poster boy for prep which um is quite a nice i don't know i think it's quite a nice position to be in but do you feel like that's something you need to continue to be engaged in so i have this i have actually had this conversation this week because it's like uh just into the new year and i'd obviously been out partying and i make no i make no uh, secrets of the fact that I, I still like to retain some of the life that i had five ten years ago but and um, i get questioned all the time why i don't why i haven't become this kind of squeaky clean pristine tweed suit community leader yeah. in inverted commas mm-hmm. and it's like i first of all i never set out to be in this position and second of all when i did find myself in this position i didn't want to be that person so i've kind of been elevated to the level of in inverted commas again expert and I, can, I have a global platform and a global reputation but so that has kind of removed me from a lot of the work that I used to do so I used to do a lot of the one-on-one clinics and giving advice on social media and I used to deal with people a lot more mm-hmm. so I really miss that but 
I guess it's kind of a natural career progression that you are elevated to a level where you don't get to do the work that you really love doing. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I do now is tits and teeth. So I'm like, <laughs> I do the Aaron Brockovich of prep business where you go out with your nice shiny PowerPoint and you travel the world having these discussions mm-hmm. and sharing learnings, which is amazing. But um, the converse, I'm involved in conversations now that I never thought I would be. So the kind of the repertoire of stuff that we talk about now is kind of moved up to a level where we work with public health bodies and we work with international non-government organisations. So I'm still having those conversations, but at a very senior level now. So still most days in my job is like the first day at school still because you just end up finding yourself doing things that you never ever thought you were going to do so I'm still having the conversations they're just on a very different level right now yeah so what like so let's start let's introduce yourself as Greg what do you do for those who maybe the first time listening to you or hearing from you or maybe they see you on Twitter but they want to know what you do in your day job that's a really hard question to answer so my name is Greg Owen I'm (laughs) co-founder of I Want Prep Now which is a website that facilitates the safe purchase of genuine generic prep but it does so much more than that so it tells you how to take prep what to do before taking prep while taking prep and when you're thinking about coming off it and it has lots of like cool videos on there and uh, different sub projects on there Um, but the kind of scope and the remit of my work is really quite broad now that I'm part of THT so Obviously, I lead on PrEP for Terence Higgins Trust, and I would lead on PrEP um, in the UK when it comes to community engagement. Mm. But my day-to-day, so I'm shooting, like I'm recording a podcast with you. I got landed a new video project, um, which will be a a national project this morning. And an hour after that, I got invited to India to speak on the I Want PrEP Now model. That's literally today. So when people say, what's your day-to-day like? I'm like, well this morning all I had was you booked in and then suddenly I find myself with a new project and a trip to India in two weeks so it's it's my day to day is weird but anything that has any kind of kind of prep content will kind of go through me at some point I guess and you're like I mean that sounds like just super exciting like are you able to stay grounded in in that and able to balance that well or is it like something which you're still kind of getting used to or like where are you at with this kind of right now so now because you were thrown into this right yeah so it's like kind of like something which just happened to you and you just had to go with it so now now I, I found my peace with it now um in the early part of this journey I really hated it um there was a point where because all of this happened by accident because I was going to start taking prep but then I got diagnosed HIV positive as I was going to make sure I could start prep so it was all completely by accident and then I posted about that and it went a little bit viral and then that turned into the idea for the website so I had no experience in this and also there was a split second before I announced my HIV diagnosis at let's talk about gay sex and drugs and then online where I thought this is I didn't think it would change my life that much but I thought uh, I'm going to be known as this guy for a little bit, mm. maybe a week or two, certainly on my social media. I didn't think it would turn into this big thing. Yeah. So the, there is a, a point where you make that choice and I made that choice. And then I got, in 2016, I got really burnt out all the time, um, mentally, emotionally exhausted because there was so much interaction with people needing support and it's never just about the sex it's always something else like emotional support relationship advice mental health stuff and so you can only engage so many times before it starts to come at a cost to you and then on top of that I don't I constantly felt like the least clever person in the room and the least qualified and the least uh, I, I didn't feel like I'd earned my place at the table mm-hmm. so it's really hard on a person to feel like that all the time and I felt like that through 2016 it was that whole year 
Um, but I made my peace with it because I earned my place at the table and I know what I'm doing and I know my stuff now. Um, but it's never an easy journey for anyone to take completely to be unexpected like that. But I think two things that I did have were passion and commitment. And I just hoped at some point that my knowledge and experience would catch up, which I think they have. Mm. But it certainly wasn't easy. But also there were so many things that I had the freedom and the luxury to do that other people who maybe were in official roles and charities or public health bodies um, couldn't do. So I, I, I had no restrictions, I had no constraints, and I was a bit wild. Mm. So a lot of stuff <laughs> happened. A lot of stuff happened around us because we had myself and Will Nutland from Prepster. Because we had the freedom to do that. We were unfunded. We didn't have to answer to anyone. And we, we really, we didn't give a fuck. Really. Yeah. So there's a lot of power that comes with that. But also, you're running on the fumes of your own kind of well-being. I kind of, that resonates with me with what you're saying, because I am running on my own fumes at the moment. And um, I don't have a social media following. Like, I don't post that often. I don't even engage in social media that often. So now that I'm possibly needing a little bit I'm finding it a little difficult to kind of get through to people so I like because you are like so active on Twitter you speak openly about not only your sex life but also like sexual health and how much of that I'm just wondering publicly like Greg Owen this is what I like to do I like to fuck I like to have fun I like to be open and I don't give a fuck or how much of it is like we need to talk about this openly because we need to keep the conversation about you equals you and prep going is there a boundary there between like personal personal Greg and like fun Greg so I so again when this whole thing started uh, and I was diagnosed HIV positive I, I really wanted to make that count for something so the only thing that I had to, that was of any worth at that point was that story it was, it was a real human interest story it was a story that a lot of people like me were finding themselves in or knew someone in a similar situation so I mightn't have had all the expertise back then but I had a story that was very real for mm. a very lot of a lot yeah. of my friends so I, I think if I had my chance to do it again um, I would put less of me in but that's all that I had back then I only had the, the personality and the, the little bit of traction that I got at the start so I there are a few tricks you can learn that I learned the hard way going through this is one is that you don't have to have all the answers it's alright to say I don't know and B is you don't always have to have those conversations because at some point you got you have to put in some safeguards to go I'm just too exhausted and I think the biggest lesson that I learned is if you are very visible on social media and um, you need to have processed whatever you're going to post first so nothing I post is fake mm. and what you see is a version of me mm. but I will have processed anything emotionally and mentally before I post it because the worst thing when you're a little bit emotionally um elevated or mentally drained is somebody else's opinion that's perhaps not so kind so process it first and then post it so I learned I learned that lesson um, and also it's like I think the more you take ownership of your stuff whether that's the good the bad the ugly whatever although we don't like good and bad the more you take ownership of what you're doing the more control you have over that in regards to I added myself about my HIV status um, I made that very public I made my sex life very public and it kind of left any people who would kind of come for me and troll me without any ammunition because I kind of it was all out there yeah. when you see a person genuinely and legitimately being transparent and open there's very little left that you can do to pull them so I kind of have no shame I don't deal in shame so like that's now has that always been 
you social media obviously is a presentation of yourself and so I so I used to be an actor that was the first thing I was an actor since I was like 11 years yeah. old and I graduated college and I was 21 you went to drama school didn't yeah, you yeah I went to drama school um, and I was an actor up until um, and a writer up until my early 30s and so you learn very quickly and this is the days before social media but yeah. you learn very quickly that you are a product so regardless of what you're selling in the, in the, in the casting or whatever you're selling in photographs or a video recording or an audition that you are a product so there was already a detachment with me from myself and myself the product when I was an actor and that really stood me in good stead for this work and, and I think then when I was in my mid-twenties and social media came in that I kind of I, I kind of applied that ethos to how I present myself on social media so it's not necessarily fake but I am aware that it's a it's a it's consumable product and I am the product so mm. I there, there, are, there are two things that lead into this when I was diagnosed HIV positive I didn't know any out people living with HIV who weren't moaning all the time and I'm not saying that disrespectfully it was really fucking hideous for some of them back then before we had the U equals U message and before we people were starting treatment yeah. early people were allowed to get sick before mm. they started treatment so the landscape was much harsher then yeah this is a really really new narrative it's a really like, new narrative even I've only heard of this in the last you know few years like yeah. I can't even remember how I heard of PrEP I think it might have been on Facebook on a post somewhere and I was like so it might have even been that event I saw you actually so you equals you that messaging came out out around 2000 and the end of 2015 into 2016 and the prep message here in the UK around about the same time yeah. so we were neck and neck so for me I didn't see anyone like me in the people representing people living with HIV I didn't see anyone who had a, who took it in their stride because it wasn't so easy before I was I was diagnosed at a really really fortunate time and I had no idea I was going to become the prep person so I shaped that narrative I'm fully aware of that but there's a, a weird juxtaposition that comes with a public profile which I didn't plan on getting, which I got very heavily, is that the more visible I became with as a HIV advocate and a PrEP advocate, um, the less I was seen as a person. So the, the, more, invi- the more visible I became, the more invisible I felt. So mm. I would be, a, I remember in two brewers once, I was stood next to this group of guys. One said to the other guy, oh, I've started prep. And the other guy said, where did you get that from? And he said, oh, I got it from this website called I'm on Prep Now. And he's like, well, what is that? And he's like, it was run by this guy, this like mouthy queen called Greg Owen. And I, like, I was stood there and I was like, Christ, right, okay. And I was literally stood listening to this conversation about me and my work and my website. So that was a bit weird. Um, that was horrendous. Uh, you know, it was an adjustment, but kind of, I guess seeing myself all over social media and all over mainstream media as well is that I think quite often looking in it looks like a really great life mm. and I'm not I don't want to sound like all of these tortured celebrities that's not at all what I'm getting <laughs> at but I've been really really lonely through 2017-18 it's really hard to A. find the time to invest in someone and B. when people kind of know a little bit about who you are or at least if they don't know who you are when you meet like I can't really hide yeah. what my job or what I do and so it's kind of anxiety inducing for me that, yeah. that initial bit do, do, do people know who I am are they okay with it like what is this and then like if you've seen the documentary you've, you pretty much know my whole backstory for the mm-hmm. last five years and so what do you talk about on a first date and like ev- eventually all my first dates end up becoming 
many consultations about sexual health and right. HIV prevention. Yeah. So I guess when you work for you and with your community, it makes dating and and establish re-establishing a, a personal identity very difficult. Yeah. So yeah. I can't teach you the lessons because I think it's something that evolves all the time. Yeah. And I think it's something you learn. For you. It, it doesn't really matter if you have like a huge public profile or you're just trying to navigate your close circle of friends. I think those things evolve, and I think learning to roll with them. It's kind of how you do it. I still haven't figured it out. No. Like I've been chronically single since 2016. But it's that thing you said earlier about like giving so much of yourself. Someone explained to me like about your emotional bank account before. Actually, it was my therapist. Um, <laughs> explained to me about my emotional bank account. And he was like, when you're always withdrawing from your emotional bank account, at some point you get overdrawn. And at some point you have to start making deposits in. And I'm not very good at making deposits into my emotional bank account. I'm constantly letting people withdraw from them. Or I'm just fucking handing them out like loans not yeah, even loans just like how to say take my emotions so like when you're doing that publicly and when you are like literally faced with such a massive challenge i say massive challenge because you seem to have owned it and turned it into something which is incredible like i can completely like imagine how you would feel like maybe you, there wasn't much more of yourself left for yourself is that what you're saying or am i just, yeah am so I just first thinking? of all i didn't find there was uh, yeah I, I, burnout's re i mean and i think anyone who works in hiv uh, and sexual health you don't do it for the money because there's not a great amount of money in it and, and you do it because you really care about it which mm-hmm. means that everything is really fucking personal for yeah. you and when, you, when you're when uh, the face of an initiative or a campaign or a movement of course that's really personal to you and so there's this weird thing as well where I think regardless of what you do people expect something and the more visible you are, they expect... So, I mean, I get told off sometimes for posting too honestly about sex or drugs or STIs or my sex life or about kind of... I get told off sometimes because sometimes I think people work. like... Um, or like uh, well, work is quite cool, but sometimes people online find it a little bit like, oh, I, 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 I don't like... I, I, I would prefer you to behave more X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, you know, and maybe I should, but I'm not mm. going to. So... Yeah, I think yeah. The, the job has the job has been weird. The job has been really <laughs> weird. Um, so what, hang on, when did you come to London? I moved here in nineteen ninety eight, August two thousand. Sorry, <laughs> August nineteen ninety eight. So I was just turned eighteen. Oh, cool. So that was what drama school did you go to? I went to Guildford School of Acting. Did you? Yeah, what so course did you do? Uh, I started on the acting course. And then I moved to the musical theatre. They didn't course. even invite me for an audition. Really? <laughs> no. It's a it's a really good college. Although I did get into, I did get accepted for Central, but I turned that down actually. I went Why to. Why did you I know, turn down Central? Because I went because then I found the Goldsmiths course, um, oh. theatre performance course, and I was like, no, actually, I'd rather make than like be taught like lines and mm-hmm. how to act. Um, I was going through a bit of a situation myself, so I was like, I went. I was really old. I was like twenty six when I started my BA, so I was just mm-hmm. like definitely sure what I wanted to do. But and so, but, do you not? pursue that anymore yes yeah, so I've just started a masters so oh. I'm back at Goldsmiths like which is like my home turf and I've just started a masters as well so it's all a big like upheaval um, I actually had to like leave my job and stuff to get this going because it just wasn't any time and you know yeah, that's quite a brave step yeah I mean <laughs> this is why I've got such imposter syndrome because like, if this doesn't work I'm fucked I've got, I haven't got a plan B there right now. is no one that doesn't have imposter syndrome for sure literally if you don't have it there's something wrong with you no but that's why I was so pleased you said yes because I was just like cool like Greg's number one top of my list and then I've got a bunch of other people who've also said yes thankfully so I'm like okay cool if these people are down then it's like I'm doing a good thing and I'm like I'm here for it so thank you again that's alright so let's go back to like Belfast yeah what's Belfast like as a kid because I'm from Devon so I'm like 
Like it's super white, super straight. I had no clue what a fucking gay person was. All I knew was, was like from what they told me at school was that it was basically bad because they were like teasing me for being gay. Um, What's Belfast? Because this is like is it, what, what, this is like in the nineties. You're growing yeah, up, right? The 90s, so this is like so. in the middle of the troubles. Yeah, uh, and the troubles. Uh, the troubles were. I mean, I only ever. Which I love that phrase, by the way. The troubles. The troubles. Yeah, and they literally started like five minutes from from where I I was born and grew up. Um, so in the eighties, I was. So I was born in nineteen eighty. So the nineteen eighties were my like kid years, and the nineteen nineties were my teenage years. Yeah. So it's like a really evenly spaced out yeah. way to, to deal with your growing up so in the 80s I don't remember much because I was like under 10 but I remember and I tell the story a couple, I've told the story loads about my dad saying um, my mum saying that I might be a hairdresser when I grow up my dad saying no son of mine is going to be a hairdresser they die young and I was like, well, what is this? Oh, what does shit. this mean? And so obviously they were insinuating my homosexuality and my gayness even from when I was like eight, eight or nine my mum said to me sorry my mum said to me um I don't mind you being gay, I just don't mean to get sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... And I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, and I was totally confused as a kid, and then when... I mean, this is before I even started puberty, and then when you you, you go into puberty and you realise something is is different with you, uh, it was really alarming, and I, I, I thought it would be something that would pass. And although it's a very... It's a very religious place back home, your family religious as well? Well, not. I mean, they're Catholic, but n- not really very strict Catholic. Um, but a lot of our socioeconomic... Uh, <laughs> how do I put this? So a lot of opportunities um, are divided by religion back home. So, right. so typically, uh, historically, um, things would be stacked in favour and bias towards Protestant communities. Um, and Catholic communities communities were quite often deprived of opportunities. Were you aware of that then, like at the time, or was it like looking back, you're like, oh. I was aware of it from my dad always being like, you go to school, you get your education, because how you break that chain is, you know, you make sure that your kids are educated. And so therefore they they are from a, a at least a, a, an eligibility perspective, they are as eligible as people on the inverted commas other side and mm-hmm. um, but so my dad was really really key with us getting an education which I rebelled against but uh, his generation certainly lost out in job opportunities and 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 plenty of other um, equalities based mm-hmm. um, things because of their religion so when all of that is going on and people are literally killing each other every day um, to add the thought of being gay and even more different into that mix was really difficult for yeah. me yeah were you aware of all that stuff going on? Like, was it was it like was it the norm to you by that point? To, when yeah, because you, like, you know, it was when it's all you've ever known. It's like you don't. And I didn't leave Belfast until my first audition for drama college. So I was like seventeen the first time I left because and we didn't have cheap flights. So you'd never been to London before you moved to. No, I'd never been to London. Well, a few times before for auditions. So for me, it was it was is really weird so I, I didn't notice how fucked up that situation mm. was until I moved here and it wasn't there anymore. But I remember when I got on the tube carriage at Heathrow to go into where I was staying the first time I arrived in London, I was literally the only white person on the tube carriage and I had never seen, I had never been in that position before, ever before in my life. Yeah. It was all white Irish Catholics. We had some um, Asian people there who, 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 and a lot of Chinese community who ran restaurants. Mm. And I think I'd seen four black people my whole life who mm. were a family that lived next door to my aunt in the university area. So my for almost 18 years, I'd seen 
um, a couple of Chinese families. I literally grew up on an island that was almost a white island. Mm. And yeah. I mean, maybe there was a luxury for me that I didn't have because I didn't live with those communities and, and I didn't live with people who weren't like me was that I didn't have any of those preconceptions forced onto me. Mm. So when I came here and I, I I met people who weren't like me, people of colour, that actually I was able to just meet them as people yeah. other than communities to be feared. So there's a really fucked up thing when we talk about race and mm. inequality and racism in this country. It's really fucked up. It's kind of similar for me because like I'm from Devon. So like I know there's quite a big um, community in Bristol, for example, which is obviously Somerset, the next... Um, county up from me of that people of colour there but then it seems like when it gets to Devon it's just like there's no people of colour there's no but also there's no LGBTQ scene there either and there still isn't now I mean there is like a few pubs and clubs mm. around but it's not like it was and it was it was certainly growing up I, I've had absolutely no visibility or kind of like representation there at all is that like the same of you in Belfast or because it's quite a big city isn't it Belfast so uh, well, I mean, is like, there a scene there? Yeah there was a scene so um, I mean first of all I'll say that Belfast now and Northern Ireland in general is much more ethnically diverse and, mm. and it's actually so much better for it um, I see people walking around like uh, <laughs> like uh, like young mixed race kids or young black kids actually with Belfast accents and it's so weird because mm. I'm like oh my god you're, we actually have like people who are not white Irish with, mm. with Irish accents it's actually really odd to go back home and see this completely different city from how it was when I left like 20 years ago so that's an amazing thing in regards to the LGBT community they, they, it was strong back in my day and there was a real sense of community then because it wasn't so easy to be gay back in Belfast at that time so quite often where you find um, very toxic and repressive religious regimes that I will call back home yeah. it was very repressive um, is that you do get a very vibrant uh, v- very close and well-knit community and that's what I had in, in, in the 90s um, and it's changed and evolved and I think it's a, it's a weird place Belfast because in many ways they're like 10 years behind the mainland and in other ways they're so much more ahead so like Leeds is a very polysexual scene so they have a lot of mixed clubs and they have they still have gay clubs and straight clubs so they have a lot of mixed nights and Belfast the gay scene back there um, has been going that way for a long time so it's it's the divide between those communities um, is, is is really it's not there mm. so much anymore so it's really nice to see because I have a gay brother back home yeah and um, it's nice to see that for him it's a very different experience than it was for me was that a lot easier for you growing up as well having a gay brother do you say well you wouldn't know obviously no, I was the oldest so actually it was my coming out was so traumatic that it put him off coming out for about five years longer than he should have so yeah, wasn't so good. I had to learn a lot of stuff very quickly, but I also had to unlearn. But there had to be the willingness to do that. And I think that's the problem with, especially because I work with communities that are disproportionately affected by HIV. So that's brown and black communities. And so there has, and I mean, I, 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 HIV is you know something I'm very passionate about. And so are the people in communities that are heavily affected by HIV. But there has to be a willingness to learn and there has to be a willingness to decenter yeah. yourself. So if you really want to do that work and you really want to make a difference, I think the first thing you need to do as a white person is to go, I don't have all the answers and my voice should not be the loudest voice in this narrative. And my, it's going to be uncomfortable for me. And actually, I'm going to have to shut up and listen. You know, if you want to be a true ally, the, I, I really believe the best thing to do is not to be seen. Yeah be there and support but not to be seen marching all over those conversations so when I say I'm awkward about white people talking about race it's not that I because 
racism is a problem that white people need to fix yeah, for yeah. sure but part of fixing that is decentering whiteness and a lot of white people struggle to grasp that concept i you know i'm not there yet and i have inherent you know and um, you know subconscious bias of course we all have that but it's the willingness to listen and try to unlearn i guess what i was just trying to like work out was like how much of a shock from ireland was it when you arrived here and that's the first thing you see it was terrifying um, it was really terrifying because i remember mine was a bit like a montage of like you know like lights and like i was in slow motion i was eating a hot dog and i was like going to bars and clubs and i was just throwing myself in there and i literally felt like i was in a completely different world so I even put on a fake English, uh, British accent when I went to buy my ticket from the ticket so that people wouldn't think I was like fresh off the potato boat. So I, I, so I, when I went to buy my ticket for the tube, I put on like a fake British accent. Can you so, do it now? So, no, I can't. <laughs> well, I can't do it now, but I'm not going to do it now. So I actually like pretended I was British so I wouldn't draw any attention to myself. I was that terrified. And that was nothing to do with people of colour. That's to do with being like this 17-year-old kid who had never been out of Belfast mm. and suddenly finding himself in the middle of London and terrified. So did you just throw yourself into it? Like, what's the first thing you do? Like, what does Greg do when he's fresh off the runway? Gets there, unpacks his bags. Is he oh. off to a club? Is he like, what's going on? So I went to stay with these old gays. <laughs> older, these older gentlemen. I stayed so, with an old gay. One of um, so it was basically, I was working in a theatre back home. And one of the panto dames, the panto dame had a, a house here. So I stayed with his, his boyfriend. Um, and I went to heaven for the first time when I was like 17. And it was, I mean, I had never seen anything like it. And I really felt really fucking uncomfortable. Mm. And if I'm being honest, I didn't really start to feel comfortable until my mid-20s. I still don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm still really socially awkward. Yeah. But I kind of started to find my, it took me a long time to find my feet. Yeah. But I got, I got there, I think. Obviously, you're getting on with your studies and stuff. You jump into party, party lifestyle. No, I didn't actually party that much. So when I, um, I didn't party that much really in my early 20s I really started partying in my, in my mid 20s when I met my ex-fiance he was right. a big party boy and so we partied a lot but this again like 2005 2006 was before iPhones Chemsex yeah. uh, Crystal Meth Methadone hadn't come in there were no there literally were no iPhones yeah. so and we didn't have, obviously we had no smartphones so we had no 3G or 4G so all of this technology came spinning at us towards the did end you ever feel like you were like you know, you were like behaving badly or like you were doing it for any wrong reasons or all just kind of fun and games. Back point. then it was fun and games. Yeah. Excuse me. For sure it was fun and games, but um, people always ask me kind of when, when did my drug use become problematic? And, and actually for me, it was a very clear progression to problematic. Mm. So I started using, I started taking a load of drugs and going partying with my ex-fiance and then we started doing chemsex drugs and having chemsex mm. uh, as a couple um, so we always had a safety net of the other person and then when the relationship ended my drug use became drug abuse so I started using drugs in a dependent way and in a self-meditating way and then when the relationship really finished I lost that safety net of that of that of that unit of me and him mm. so yeah I, I think I think some people can exist in that environment very well. I did for a long time. No, I can't. But if one or two things, if one or two things go, you know mm-hmm. this. If your mental health goes, or you have like a something goes on at work, or anything, if as soon as you tweak the, the delicate foundations of that, you can find yourself in a really dangerous place yeah. really quickly. Yeah, I think I'm. So I worry about like 17, 18 year olds who find themselves on today's scene, and that's their introduction. Because I'm like Jesus. 
like at least we had pills in the 90s and you know right. and we had ketamine and then G came in and then you know we had MDMA and methadone came in after that and then crystal meth came into that for house parties and you know this was like 2010 2011 so I had had you know 10 years of party experience when these dangerous drugs came in but I'm like Jesus if you're like 17 and your entry into the party scene is a chemsex party in Clapham yeah that's been going on for three days with loads of people slamming crystal and methadone where the fuck are you going to end up right and like and what is your what is your your temple for that you know what is your point of reference to what healthy normal behaviour is yeah that was doesn't exist in my reference point to, exactly as soon as, as I that's arrived. your default what what were and what are we doing to help? And I'm only now beginning to unpack that because it's been nearly 12 months since I've done any chems at all. So like I'm only now beginning to unpack that. And what I haven't learned to do is find something which is like replacing what I was looking for in that thing. So I'm still like in that kind of transitional period between like coming off it and actually being happy that I'm not doing it anymore. Well, you know, so there were, there's one huge benefit of finding myself in the middle of this wild prep ride was... I, I literally just stopped doing chemsex because I realised I was in a very public role very quickly yeah. and I didn't I, I didn't I fell in love with something again so I fell in love with the work and I was really committed to it um, and actually it wasn't hard for me to stop because I found my reality all of a sudden was not somewhere I wanted to escape so much yeah. so, so this worked in a roundabout way although I resented it a lot so I wasn't ready to be rebranded or change my behaviour yeah. Uh, it really did like have a huge impact on 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 my on my personal life mm. and the way I approach kind of myself and my community. Should we talk about the reality of it here? Like, how did we get here right now? Because obviously, you have like a super pivotal moment, which kind of like would have broken so many people, um, but you were able to kind of take it, own it, and then basically represent it as like a kind of it's come it's become almost your superpower and like. I kind of just want to know where that comes from because there's a bunch of people out there that have been broken or yeah, it would so break so easily. First of all, if you're not dealing with, first of all, so first of all, if you are struggling with it or you're dealing with it a different way, you're not failing. So what a lot of people didn't see about me or don't see because the story doesn't really pick up until my diagnosis. So there's a lot of stuff, very personal stuff that I can't really share because it involves mm. a handful of other people, but. A handful of people very close to me had had become HIV positive and some of them are no longer with us and some of them are still with us but are completely have not started to heal from that um, I know some people who've become very destructive and those that didn't die through drugs and going wild are, are still dealing with those associated behaviours with not being so okay so I had a really difficult time um, with a handful of people that I really loved and I had a failed suicide attempt through for various reasons but the end of my relationship and some stuff that happened to some people I was really close to um, I, I had seen people be literally destroyed and I'd seen people's eyes being ruined and I'd seen people die not of an AIDS related illness of killing themselves through mm. just going off the rails um, and a couple of people who committed suicide uh, so I there was a couple of years where I saw a lot of stuff and I had a failed suicide attempt at the end of 2013 so when it came around to that I just managed to script myself back to some, some sense of normality in August 2015 and I was going to go back to university to study to be a therapist 
Um, and when that happened to me, I'd already been to hell and back. So it kind of looks like this really shitty thing happened to me. And I just went, boom, here at an event, like, let's talk the next night. And then boom, straight after that, this viral, uh, this viral social media post and that I didn't pay any tax. But the reality is where you know, no one gets away tax free. So mm. I paid my tax, but I paid my tax so severely that when it came to me, I point blank refused to go back to the place that I was in just a few years before so yeah uh, nobody gets away scot free and yeah. nobody you know nobody gets a, an easy ride of this yeah, I just you said, paid my dues before you did say on the people versus the NHS um, that you'd thrown away your HIV negative status and you had to make it count for something so I mean what is it that you could find in that moment like um, to share with people who may be either newly diagnosed or like maybe in a situation where they are thinking they might not be able to overcome something because yeah I mean I share this story as well it doesn't always make it into the final edits but um, it has made it into a couple of podcasts and a couple of interviews is that one of my very good friends who had been living with HIV for about 10 years at the time just told me to be a little bit selfish he said um there are going to be people around you who want to take care of you and want to look after you and they'll want you to be okay for them to be okay and so they'll start putting demands on you for them to be okay Mm. through you being okay but you can't run to other people's demands on you right now what you have to do is be a little bit selfish and make sure that you're going to be okay and do what you need to do to make you okay and everyone else will fall into place and actually I'm really glad that he gave me that advice and I think that I find myself quite a lot in situations from from that moment where I've questioned myself and whether I was as cool as I thought I was. And actually I was, but I think other people can project so much of how a terrible situation this is onto you that actually you start second guessing, even if you are as okay as you think you are. Mm. Um, and also I think just kind of sitting and listening, because I think when you're in a heightened emotional state, it's very easy to become confused and disorientated. So for me, although I was chaotic and a mess, for me, just kind of finding a little bit of stillness to kind of listen to what was going on, then the next step always kind of seemed to be there. Like the answer is always there. Yeah. And kind of trying to sit safe and confident in the knowledge that you're going to be okay is actually the best advice that I could give anyone. Like it literally, it will be okay. And how you make that okay is different for all of us but it does get easier. Yeah, especially now with so many support services and so many campaigns and stuff out there. Um, thank you. I mean, I guess just finally, um, you said, um, again, in the, in the documentary, you said, I'm not angry that I have HIV, you're just angry that the people that could have helped me failed me um, and other people like me. Um, I just want to know where we're at with that now, where we're we at with PrEP, like what's... So we should have PrEP commissioned at some point in 2020. When that will be available on the NHS, I'm not actually sure because things take a long time. Um, but we're still pushing and pushing. But this is only the start. So once we get uh, PrEP commissioned, then we need to look at you know having it in, in settings outside of sexual health clinics and really reaching those people who have not embraced it mm. so much so far. So this is just the beginning of the work. So a lot of work to come. Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Jim. wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. Honestly, it means the world that you chose to join me. If you liked it, subscribe. And of course, please make sure that you share with your friends. I'd really like you to get involved in the conversation as well. So head over to Twitter or Instagram at LGBTQ Pillars, or you can get in contact at www.pillars.org.uk where you can find out about upcoming events, 
all our guest profiles and contact me to get involved. And remember, we can't build a home out of broken bricks. We need pillars. Pillars.